Hello, my name's Frank and I'm the host of the UFO Thinker podcast. I'd always been mildly interested in UFOs, but like many people, the events of 2017 ignited a fire of curiosity for the UFO topic, which has been raging ever since. I wanted to start a podcast, but initially thought, well, I'm not an astrophysicist, I'm not a fighter pilot, and I've never even seen a UFO. I'm just a normal guy who's interested in this mystery. But that's when a light bulb went off. There are so many other people just like me who are fascinated with this stuff. So why not start a podcast to talk about it from the ordinary guy's perspective? All the BS stripped away, as a few people have said. And let's see if we can get to the truth in all of this. Thanks to everyone who's been on board with the journey so far. It's been amazing to see so many listeners tuning in. And if you're new here, welcome. You can now support the podcast on Patreon with tiers starting from £3 per month. The podcast will always be 100% free, but supporting the show in this way allows me to devote more time and make the show bigger and better. Higher tiers also include special benefits such as being able to suggest episode topics and get merchandise. And I really truly appreciate every listener whether you support on Patreon or not. So now with all of that said, let's get into today's episode. Hello and welcome to the UFO Thinker podcast. My name's Frank and let's get cracking. So another recent events episode and we're just going to plough straight into it because there's been a lot going on and um, there's actually a lot going on last week. Some of this kind of is the grey area between last week and this week and um, yeah, there's so much happening. I'm just trying to keep up with everything and understand it and make sure I don't miss any key points. Um for my own understanding really and obviously you know people who listen to these recent events episodes hopefully you get something from it as well so one of the big points that's been happening is this new Lou Elizondo interview with George Knapp on Coast to Coast AM and um, as far as I can see there's not a way to listen to this in full uh, for free i think it's one of those where you have to there's a bit of a paywall and you have to join like a members of coast to coast am and um, to actually be able to to check out the whole thing but obviously that's kind of what i aim to do with these is to give you some of the key points and if you do want to check out the entire thing you can then go on there and actually uh, pay the little fee it's a monthly fee and then uh you can check out the entire thing and and if you find it fascinating i would urge you to do that because you know george knapp is is uh, somebody that we can that we can all kind of i think for the most part we can all agree on is it is a very good source of information in this topic and i always do think it's good to support uh, if you feel like you get value from somebody's work support them you know i try and do that whenever i can on on patreon and things like that um for for other like joe mergier and, and other podcasts that i uh, get a lot out of i feel like it's nice to be able to give a bit back and support that work at the end of the day whoever we support now you know will be that support will enable them to be able to do more and more work you know to to push this topic forward so i, I do advocate uh, that much as i don't like interviews being hidden behind a, a paywall at the same time if you hear bits and bats that you find interesting it's worth supporting if it's a if it's a worthwhile cause so let's dig into a few of the things that um that lou was talking about so 
first of all, there was a lot of reiterations of things that Lou said in the past, uh, which you would expect, uh, you know, things to do with it being a marathon, not a sprint. But he also uh, asserted that 2022 will be uh, a big year. So that's interesting. He, I think he's basically trying to temper expectations a little bit you know it's not going to be this kind of one and done disclosure situation where the government you know the US government have a press conference Joe Biden goes on stage and and just spills the beans I think by this point it's fairly clear that that isn't going to happen Um, you know I I don't think that that's going to happen really with with any situation Um, it's very rare that there's a situation where it's one big press conference and everything just gets spilled out on the table straight away because those are the things that cause panic aren't they even if there is some kind of disclosure planned it is definitely going to be a slow uh, slow drip Um, and if there is no disclosure planned from behind the scenes to gradually tease out the information it's just literally a case of that information will be revealed gradually through various people's work of, of trying to reduce the um you know the the secrecy but yeah it was an interesting uh, observation that 2022 is going to be a big year and it does make you wonder what exactly there is in the pipeline uh, but obviously that's going to be revealed as we go along and um, as i've said before there is a lot of different areas to keep an eye on this year so it will be interesting to see how it all pans out so um Another thing that was highlighted within this uh, interview was the uh, one of the main motivations is for Lou to get congressional interest and support. Now he's mentioned in previous interviews, like some time ago, that you know once he feels like there is that congressional support for this topic, and Congress are going to actually push the various departments who have all the knowledge and all the information about uh, this topic that he he will feel like it's a job done and he'll be able to ride off into the sunset. And it's something that uh, Frank Milburn talks about quite a lot as well. One of his published papers is the um, the concept that that is the main motivation for Lou Elizondo and Chris Mellon as kind of you know American patriots who have a, a very strong interest in this topic, having seen things on the inside, some of the classified uh, data, that what they're trying to do is to unite all of these various stovepipes and compacts com- compartmentalized um you know very small groups within um the the american government and the american military he's trying to basically get congress to push for a reduction in the the compartmentalized nature of the work on this topic to allow better breakthroughs Um, and i I think that was a, a comment that hints at that once again and you know that that's got to explain why there is a sense from Lou Elizondo that real progress is being made because we are seeing now congressional interest and the stigma being reduced and you know hopefully that that continues to to go down that path so there was also some mention of the um inspector general investigation as well the IG investigation which uh, was basically described as the the inspector general makes recommendations to the secretary of defense in an attempt to make the dod run better it's kind of um like an internal affairs office looking at sort of who's doing the job properly and who's not 
And obviously, as we know from you know the things that have come out over the last couple of years to do with Lou Elizondo, there's definitely some people in there who who don't seem to be playing by the rules as such. Because obviously, these these kind of departments, all of these various offices within the U.S. government and, and the military, and so on. They still have a certain set of, um, you know, laws and, and regulations that they have to abide to, and it certainly seems that there has been some some lines that have been crossed there, and things like the denial of of Lou Elizondo's involvement and the, the various kind of mixed messages that have been put out. There's some wrongdoing going on there by the sounds of things and that's exactly what the inspector general is is designed to do is to look into things like that when they are suspected of, of, of having happened and and make recommendations as to how that can be avoided and how things can be run better um and Lou says there that the, the Inspector General has all the info, but it will take some time to complete that investigation. So again, that'll be interesting to see how it how it pans out. No timescales mentioned or anything, but you do have to think that, you know, maybe that's going to be over the next few months or certainly within the year. Because, I mean, I know these things can drag on and on when you're talking about, you know, the bureaucracy and all of the red, various red tape and things you have to processes to go through. But surely it's not going to take much longer than, say, six months. I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of pulling figures out of the air, but it just seems logical to me that, you know, it's not going to go on and on and on for years. Or at least I would hope that it isn't. So perhaps Luella Zondo has kind of got wind of some quite significant things that could come about as a result of that uh, IG investigation. But again, it's one of those where only time will tell. We'll have to see what actually comes out. But another thing that's quite interesting in this particular interview is some names being thrown about now. Uh, it seems like there's a bit more naming names going on. Um, now, it was actually George Knapp that actually asked the question um, as to some speculation about whose former supervisors, uh, who, who was Lou's for, former supervisor, and the name Gary Reed was mentioned. Obviously not to be confused with the late, great Harry Reed. Uh, we're talking about Gary Reed here. Um, so obviously a completely different person. And, and Lou was asked about whether or not Reed was his former supervisor. And Lou responded to that by saying, I recognise the name, but... My mother always told me if you don't have anything nice to say, then don't say anything. So basically, he's pretty much throwing Gary, Gary Reed under the bus there. Um, you know, which is, we don't know what's actually gone on, but I would suggest that if Lou Elizondo says that Gary Reed um, has done some some uh, things that are not exactly favourable, um, then I would be, you know, I would be inclined to, to believe him because Lou Elizondo really doesn't do that, you know, very often. He does he doesn't tend to name names and and you know actually specifically call out certain people. So Gary Reed is a name to perhaps take things with a pinch of salt if we do hear any statements from that particular individual. I think it's safe to say. And, and again, it could be that this IG investigation, we hear more about Gary Reed and the supposed wrongdoings that may have occurred. Uh, and, and Joe Mergier on his, on his write-up um, uh, of, the, of the interview actually also mentions Kate Borovic and um, Marcel Lettre. Um, and those are Kate Borowich with the DIA and Marcel Letra with the OU, 
SDI and those are a couple of other names to uh, to basically watch out for in terms of perhaps not being on the side of um, you know increasing transparency on the UFO issue apparently they were those two individuals particularly there uh, tried to actually shut down the ORSAP program um, and really kind of threw a spanner in the works of, of that whole thing so um, again interesting to, to bear that in mind so Another thing then was the the drones conversation made a bit of a, an appearance in, in this uh, discussion as well. Uh, that's something that's uh, been coming up a lot recently. Obviously, we all know Stephen Green Street, Drone Street, as, as people like to refer to him these days, is a bit fixated on drones. And it's that whole thing, isn't it? I know, you know, myself and, uh, and Nick Gadman, um, we've been chatting about this a little bit uh, on and offline. Uh, just regarding it's one of those things where you know in this day and age anything can be described as a drone can't it like whatever if you see an unknown object in the sky one of the first things that people will say is oh it's just a drone you know and it is a bit of a it's a godsend really to people who are actually trying to cover up um, you know anomalous objects in the sky is you, anything can just be dismissed as a drone now and that gets very frustrating when you're talking about um, you know true anomalous objects especially when you consider I've mentioned on the podcast I think it was last week that you know there was that uh, James Howard uh, the pilot in, in 1954 who saw some kind of large shape-shifting triangular object um, that followed their plane for miles and miles um, I think it was for like an hour. I forget now without checking it, but it was it was a long time, and and everybody on board, dozens of witnesses, all said that you know they were absolutely convinced that that wasn't you know some kind of atmospheric weather phenomenon. It was an intelligently controlled um, technology that followed their plane back in 1954. And as I've mentioned, Graham Rendell. Um, in his book UFOs Before Roswell goes into num- numerous cases of of um, objects tailing you know aircraft during the war and and they weren't drones were they and basically what what's mentioned by Lou Elizondo here is that exactly that that these things have been witnessed for a long time since way before drone technology even existed at all um but however on a quick side note from the Lou Elizondo interview, there's just been a new Tim McMillan article that's come out which suggests that the Swedish UFOs that I was talking about last week over the uh, the Swedish nuclear facilities may have actually been some kind of PSYOP attempt against the West by Russia. And it's worth reading that article because it, I, I think it's quite a you know an in-depth breakdown of why that may be the case. But for me it's not really going at that same thing of oh it's just it's just drones you know instantly dismissing it's actually quite a well put together argument and analysis of the situation and we all know at the moment that obviously there's there's massive tensions between you know Russia and Ukraine and and some you know some pretty worrying signs coming from that part of the world at the moment and you know, we know that that Russia have have done various cyber attacks on Ukraine, and and the, it's kind of the uh, the grey warfare I think they refer to it as, where it's not an all out war. It's not you know everybody's being friendly. It's somewhere in between. Russia just kind of chip away at, at the confidence of of the West and interfere in elections and run disinformation campaigns and all of that. You know, could be linked to some kind of 
you know drone incursions and something i was talking about last week when i touched on this drones thing was that we it's, it's a very complex picture because it's not a case of everything's a drone first of all that's that's a, a bit of a ridiculous argument because you know we have no way to prove that it's like saying everything's a seagull you know it's it's daft because everything's not a seagull the, the likelihood of everything to be described as you know a drone every single video anomalous object uh, being being a drone is is almost impossible but it's also impossible that you know that none of these objects that are being witnessed are drones some of them almost certainly are drones so it's a real tough line to cross and and i was i was thinking about this last week and saying that's only going to get more and more confusing as drone technology increases like currently for example you can say ah, it's not very likely to be a drone because drones can't go that fast or you could say it's not likely to be a drone because a drone can't stay in the air for more than two hours because of the battery life. But obviously, as battery life increases and and the speed of the the motors on drones increases, those two things won't be even you won't even be able to eliminate things on that basis. So as drones get more advanced, you know we're going to be looking at an even more confusing picture and it's something we're we're going to have to really bear in mind if you're interested in in the UFO topic drones are here to stay and the drone technology that we have on this earth is going to get better and better and that gray area of is it a drone is it a true anomalous object is going to get even more complex and then i suppose you could add that to the uh, you know add to that the, the the possibility of some of the reverse engineering that's that's taken place across the globe again the extent of of what has been actually you know gleaned from those studies is debatable you know some people think that there's no progress being made some people go so far as to say that there are actually intact working craft and you know and there's every argument in between but even if a slight bit of progress is made on reverse engineering uap tech if we see that actually being implemented in drones and I'm not talking about like publicly available drones, but you know, black programs within the militaries of, of various countries, even if they manage to, you know, reverse engineer some kind of plasma field, which reduces the, the air, uh, the friction in the air of, of a drone, you could dramatically increase the speed that an aircraft could travel at. And I was talking about this on a podcast the other day, the, the Condine report in the UK, which came out, I think, 1999 or 2000, um, recommended that those areas are looked into. It, it concludes that UAP are, in fact, a real thing that is being witnessed on a regular basis, and they do seem to defy, you know, any any sort of laws of physics and things that, that we understand, and, and, you know, these things are definitely doing things that, that we can't do with our technology and but the condine report actually uh, recommends that these things are not a national security threat but what we should do is look into that to see if there's any um, military advancements that we can make based on the observed um, movements and, and characteristics of these uh, plasma phenomena so you have to think that if that that was the case and that was recommended 20 years ago uh, well, over 20 years ago 
they must have made at least some efforts to look into that and maybe some of that may have been successful and if that has happened in secrecy and they've used even some elements of that on a drone or some drone-like vehicle some of that could it could explain what we're seeing and again it's all very kind of speculative that there's not really much proof of of any um you know actual breakthroughs indeed if you think about eric davis and people like that he's actually said that there hasn't been um any any um breakthroughs and, and any real progress because of the stove piping and the compartmentalization which as i said earlier is basically what lou elizondo and chris mellon are trying to uh, to, to get around so it's a tricky area but as i say you know as drone technology you know does does get better and better it's going to get even harder so it's a conversation we have to have as much as it's frustrating um but very importantly lou elizondo said there that the that's why the five observables are so important and and that's you know a, a great point because at the end of the day if you're witnessing something that has instant instantaneous acceleration or it seems to defy gravity without any visible propulsion system then you know that is different isn't it and there's no way that could be a drone you know as much as we have decent tech at the moment we definitely don't have things that can display the five observables so again even more important whenever we're looking at any kind of video evidence um to bear that in mind the five observables are one of the best tools we have at the moment to you know properly eliminate um you know um all of the the various different considerations that it may be a drone or it may be anything else and uh, leading on from that um, nap actually asks if there um, have been any attempts to take down these quote-unquote drones with anti-drone tech and Lou basically says that he can't answer that specifically. I think he was uh, Nap was referring to the 2019 um, uh, case, uh, the drone swarm thing. And uh, Lou basically replies he can't answer that specifically, which is probably a yes, knowing the way that Lou Elizondo basically uh, answers questions. And I thought that was quite interesting, um, that it, it would appear, I mean, my kind of, you know, my intuition there is that it probably has happened that the the US have tried to take down these quote unquote drones with anti drone tech and it hasn't worked which is probably another you know another point that confirms that these are not you know human tech you know whatever you take that to mean um i i would suggest that lou is basically hinting at they've tried to take them down with the best anti-drone tech that we've got and it didn't work and if that is the case there's two things there that are pretty scary first of all the military are actually trying to engage with uap you know in terms of shooting at them which is a bit of a questionable idea really but also on the same you know the same like wavelength there you kind of have to don't you i mean if you're a, a military vessel and you've got un, unknown objects coming at you you don't know that they're not russian or chinese you have to you can't just not shoot them down and there's um there's actually a, an example given where it's basically um in in uh, 2000 the uss coal attack slash bombing where an inflatable was used in an attempt to destroy the vessel and it, it killed a lot of u.s service members uh, as a result of that 
Um, it started this minimum distance thing, this lethal line. If you cross, there's a very real possibility that you're going to get um, shot and blown out of the water. And this is Louis Zondo's words here. Um, and these quote-unquote mysterious drones are just hovering over the deck and buzzing boats and we're not going to do anything about it. Honestly, it's kind of a silly notion. Now, Luizondo says, I'm not at liberty to discuss what the US government did or didn't do, but use some common sense here. Obviously, if you have a billion dollar warship, you're not going to allow some sort of drone anywhere near your equities, especially when you're doing flight operations or anything like that because you have a lot at stake, including people's lives, the mission, etc. And uh, Knapp goes on to say, East Coast incidents with objects just sitting there for days in high winds. We made some of the pictures public. I heard there were discussions about trying to snag a couple of them or snag one. And Lou says, which I thought was really interesting, I'm in the middle of writing a book and my hope some of these very compelling incidents that I was privy to in ATIP will be able to be told. I think 5% of the story has been told. When people find out just how much was going on, I think people are going to be absolutely shocked and stunned. I mean, that's I think that's quite a big point. First of all, let's, let's kind of unpack what was said there. So first of all, I'm in the middle of writing a book. So that's interesting in itself as a, a slight aside point. I've wondered where Louis Zondo was up to with the progress of this book, and it appears that he's in the middle of writing the book. So the book's not written and I didn't know that up, up until now, so uh, I wasn't sure if maybe the book was written, it was going through the process of being cleared by the various people in the DOD, um, or whether or not it was, you know, it had already been cleared, but no, apparently he's, he's actually in the middle of writing the book, so that is, um, you know, a, an important nugget there, because we can kind of extrapolate how, how long that may take. Now, when you bear in mind that skinwalkers at the Pentagon apparently took over a year to be to be cleared i forget the exact time but it may have been something like a year and a half and um, so after having written that book which obviously contained all of those revelations about what exactly orsap did and how it all and um, all the various things that they uncovered and, and didn't uncover um you know depending on how you look at it they, that took over a year for it to be cleared um, in terms of you know all the processes that they go through probably a bit of stalling as well um, and to delay the book coming out now if Lou's in the middle of writing his book then you've got to think it's going to be at least a few months before he actually finishes writing it then it's got to be edited and then it's got to go through all the various clearing procedures so I suppose I'm hopeful that I do see that book this year but there is a possibility that we may not even see that book this year so Again, I might be reading a bit too much into that. You, you can't say maybe it'll be a lot quicker this time than the Skinwalkers book, but maybe it'll be even longer because obviously, as we know, there are a lot of people who are trying to derail the uh, the, the uh, efforts of, of Lou and Chris. So if any of those people manage to throw a spanner in the works of that clearing process, you know, we could be looking at a bit of a delay. So I thought that was interesting, first of all. Also, the fact that 5% of the story has been told is very interesting because I've wondered quite a lot, and I've mentioned this on the podcast a lot, how much of what Lou Elizondo has, has seen has already come out, you know, 
is it only a few other things apart from what he's already um you know revealed to the public is there much more what percentage has already been told what percentage is still to be told and it seems that he put a number on it you know five percent of the story has been told now that's not exact i think lou elizondo has a bit of a an affinity with the word or the number five it seems that that's the one that rolls off his tongue i've heard him say it quite a few times um, there was also something where he said, you know, he, he's, he's used this analogy before, but it's like if you're wanting instant, um, you know, uh, information about whatever biological materials, you should probably go and take up a hobby and come back to the subject in five years when progress has been made. So there's that number five again. And I've heard him use it a lot. So I think five isn't a specific number. It's just, you know, that five, five percent come back in five years. It's just a, a general kind of uh, phrase that gets thrown about and you know perhaps uh, Lou Elizondo does that subconsciously so I don't think it's particularly accurate that that it's exactly five percent but obviously the point that he's trying to make uh, you know isn't to reveal a real specific number of, of uh, you know anything in particular there it's just a, a, a basically a figure of speech isn't it but essentially what he's saying is that the vast majority of information is not already out yet which is I thought was interesting but anyway um the main point there i guess leaving the best to last is that it certainly seems that what lou elizondo is hinting at there is that in his book it will basically tell the tale of some extremely compelling incidents that he was part of in the atip effort and the fact that he mentions that straight after being asked about whether or not there was attempts to snag drones or what you know quote-unquote drones the the anomalous objects that were witnessed the fact that he answers that question that way certainly suggests to me that in his book he's going to be going into some specific uh, cases um, to do with the actual attempts to engage with in terms of fire at them or to actually capture um, some of these these objects and i think that's you know, I think that's fairly clear from that answer. I mean, again, it's it's open to interpretation as a lot of these kind of answers are from Lou Elizondo, but it certainly seems to me that that's the case. And and the fact that he says people are going to be absolutely shocked and stunned, he's not mincing his words there. So could it be that, you know, there's a case perhaps where an anti-drone missile was fired at one of these objects and the missile didn't reach its target? Could it be the case that somehow these these UAP actually shut down the missile before it even got fired? In terms of we've seen things like that before the uh, the nineteen seventy six I believe it is the the Tehran uh, incident where the uh, the the fighter pilot actually tries to fire a weapon at at a UAP uh, and the weapon systems just don't work. Maybe it's something like that. I mean, that would be pretty shocking and stunning if 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 there's actual revelations that these things, you know, won't allow anti-drone weapons to fire in the first place. That is kind of my prediction as to what may some of what may be included in this book. I'm, I'm just basically going off speculation there, um, you know, what I can read into these answers. But it seems to me that we could be looking at something like that when this book comes out. So I thought that was really interesting. But 
At the end of the day, I could go through every single point that Lou mentions in this interview and keep talking and talking about it, but we're going to move on for now because there's other things to get to. Um, but obviously, um, as always, always worth a listen to anything um, that, that, that Lou says. And... Um, if you want to check it out, like I say, go to the Coast to Coast AM website and you can pay for the membership there and listen to the entire thing. Um, our, obviously, the other option is um, you can go to Joel Mergier's Twitter page and he did a huge write-up of all the key points. I think it was something ridiculous, like 139 uh, tweets long thread that he did. So again, big shout out to Joel Mergier. Those kind of things are really helpful whether or not you can't afford to or that you don't want to pay for for any reason for the for the uh the membership cost or you know if it's just a case of you've not got the time to sit and listen to a two-hour interview it's great to get those summaries so very important work that joel merger does there right so moving on from that then um next up we've got um jack valet joining the galileo project now this is a bit vague because all i can see on the galileo project's twitter announcement for this particular uh, thing was that uh, Jacques valet has um joined the galileo project now i would guess what that means is that he's joined as a research affiliate which is the capacity that many of these people have joined. So it's basically just a a, a kind of an informal part-time kind of uh, arrangement where they provide expertise and advice and things of that nature. But again, very interesting that that Jacques Vallée has has joined up with the Galileo Project because Jacques Vallée is is somebody who I put a lot of faith into and and he's always worth listening to. Actually, Jacques Vallée's control hypothesis I find really, really fascinating. Um, and um, there's definitely some similarities with the consciousness harvesting um, you know, hypothesis that, that I've talked about a bit. Obviously, that, that's just a few ideas that I throw around, really. Jacques Vallée's got some much clearer and more developed you know, proper theories, really. Um, but it'll be interesting to see what Jacques Vallée's um, actual role is you know as time goes along we probably learn more about what these various people are doing who have joined up with the galileo project and um it worth touching on was there was actually some criticism of of the fact that jacques valet has joined up with the galileo project there's a few kind of quite funny tweets that some people did about like well pretty much everyone has joined the galileo project by this point which I must admit, is a bit of a concern for me as well. There's a hell of a lot of people who are now uh, research affiliates with the Galileo Project, and you've got to wonder, you know, is that a bit too much of a scattershot approach? And you know, how is too many cooks spoil the broth, or is it good that we've got all of these various different? people involved for the for all the various viewpoints they can bring to the table as we know there's a few um kind of pretty prominent skeptics involved in in the galileo project now and you've also got people like lou elizondo and chris mellon and, and now you've got jacques valet and i don't know i'm a bit torn on the one hand instinctively it just seems like how can you have so many people involved in this effort but on the other hand you know, I'm, I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, well, that's going to be good because you've got all of these various different um, people with different viewpoints and perhaps that'll actually benefit the project in general. So well, obviously we'll just have to see how all of that ends up um, playing out. But actually, and this is something that I think perhaps has been a little bit missed by people who've been talking about the Galileo project um, and Jacques Vallée's kind of entrance to the scene. But um, there was an article in The Hill by uh, Avi Loeb 
which is, has just recently come out. And some very interesting um, revelations about what the Galileo Project's going to be doing in this article. And uh, yeah, as I've talked about on the podcast, big fan of Avi Loeb and what he's doing with the Galileo Project in general. I can say, obviously, a few, few concerns here and there as to how it all works. But at the end of the day, you know, I, I kind of trust Avi Loeb's vision. He's the guy who put this together. He's been able to secure the funding and he's really put his name behind this you know as somebody who's a very prominent academic he's he's had the the guts to actually really put his weight behind it and and make a good push here so you know i've got to i've got to trust him on that basis that he knows what he's doing and as i've mentioned before the galileo project is looking at um developing in the in the early part of 2022 their first telescope installation uh, at one location and the idea is that once that setup is put into place with all the various uh, data gathering systems and everything in place on this one particular setup um, then they're going to roll that out to various other locations with identical setups so they're making sure that one of them works and then they're going to move them around to the various locations as uh, suggested by Lou Elizondo and Chris Mellon because part of their role in the Galileo project is to provide that information as to where the sensors could be best located to have the best chance of actually seeing something. But anyway, going back to the article, because this is the kind of the, the real juicy point here, um, is that uh, the Avi Loeb here in the article says, um, quote, but it is also possible to find UAP by looking down at them from satellites that image the Earth. For example, Planet Labs uses its fleet of miniature satellites to image the entire Earth once a day with a spatial resolution of a dozen feet per pixel. The Galileo project that I am leading aims to unravel the nature of UAP. Aside from building its first telescope system on the roof of the Harvard College Observatory in the coming months, unquote, so that's what I was just talking about a second ago. I'd forgot where it was actually, but there you go. It was, it's going to be placed on the roof of the Harvard College Observatory. Uh, uh, but anyway, going back to uh, the quote, quote, the project plans to use Planet Lab's data in searching for UAP from above. Artificial intelligence algorithms can distinguish extraterrestrial equipment from familiar objects like a meteor, an airplane, or an atmospheric phenomenon. Since there are no birds, airplanes, or lightning above the Earth's atmosphere, any object with an elevation larger than 50 kilometers would appear unusual and merit further analysis, unquote. So, really interesting, because I had no idea up until reading this article that that, that was the plan at, at all. So, not only are they building the first satellite installation on top of that uh, Harvard building there, the, the Harvard College Observatory, which is then the plan is to roll that out to other locations, like I said. Not only have we got that, they're also going to be using these satellite networks to actually be able to get data from up high, from satellites. I'm just getting more and more excited about the Galileo project as, as the days go by. Um, you know, uh, that is just absolutely fascinating to imagine what could possibly come out of that. And you've, you've got to think, you know, if... 
me personally, if I had the money and the contacts and the time to actually put something like the Galileo project together, this is how I would want it to be done, you know, and really excited to see how it all plays out there. And uh, just a couple of other little points there that uh, I mentioned uh, in, in, in the article. Uh, Avi actually goes on to say, quote, we are confident that our understanding of the universe is incomplete because we label two of its most abundant constituents as dark matter and dark energy for lack of a better knowledge of their nature. We only know that dark matter induces attractive gravity like the ordinary matter we find on Earth, whereas dark energy induces repulsive gravity, triggering the accelerated expansion of the universe. If an extraterrestrial technological civilization was able to harness these unknown but most abundant cosmic constituents to fuel the propulsion of its engineered vehicles, our telescopes would not detect the standard exhaust plumes that usually surround human-made crafts, unquote. And that was just another one. It's like, Avi, you are a legend, sir. Thank you. Um, Avi's really just openly speculating about the potential of extraterrestrial propulsion systems using some kind of harnessed energy from dark matter and dark energy which i mean avi obviously puts it much more eloquently than i can there but um really really interesting to see him in, you know really going into a bit of speculation about what we could be witnessing and and this for me is why speculation is so important because if you're trying to study something which could be you know millions of years more advanced than humans the realms of the weird is something that you have to be able to just, you know, go into and, and openly speculate on if you really want to make any breakthroughs. And it's why I always am so willing to speculate, but at the same time, you have to remain grounded and think, you know, let's be realistic, but at the same time, let's open our minds to just completely wild speculation because sometimes that's how you stumble across ideas that you go, actually, do you know what? Maybe there is something to that. And another uh, really interesting part of the article I wanted to mention is, um, quote, by watching human history, an interstellar committee might decide that there is no evidence for intelligence in the solar system as of yet, unquote. So I thought that was quite funny, you know, um, maybe we're not that intelligent as we think we are in the grand scheme of things, if indeed there is uh, other intelligences out there. But more, more to the point, carrying on that quote there, quote, but... Our AI systems might receive a higher score by having a kinship with their technological relatives, those AI systems produced by extraterrestrials. Here's hoping that our technological kids, namely the AI systems we develop, will do better than humans. In the bigger scheme of the universe, the sky's the limit. Unquote. So really really interesting observation there that actually if there are some kind of extraterrestrial civilizations out there that exist elsewhere in the universe or in another dimension or here on or whatever perhaps they're actually looking at our ai systems with some admiration or some kind of sense of familiarity maybe it even is that the extraterrestrial civilization that does exist out there as i've speculated recently maybe it's a case that 
they have birthed an AI system and then that AI system then goes on to outlive the biological origin. So if it's like, for example, if we as humans create a self-aware AI system, the, the singularity, and then humans get wiped out by some horrible disease and there's no humans left, the AI system would then carry on and would potentially be able to develop and develop and perhaps then goes on a search for the life out there in the universe. And if that was the case, and our AI then actually stumbles across another intelligence which has created AI, they certainly would feel a kinship because they're also AI. And, and could it be at that point in time that they decide to make contact with the AI and completely avoid the biological element? Maybe even convince the AI to wipe out the biological element. It's, it's a strange area of speculation that you get into and perhaps a little bit scary. Um, but I'm not exactly convinced that an, a self-aware AI system would try and wipe out the biological um, you know, creator, but... Again, it's all just personal speculation and uh, interesting to consider and, and really fascinating to see and, and really quite, um, for, I mean, for me personally, some people look at those comments from Avi and think that, you know, oh, what's he talking about? He's going down some weird speculative routes, but I think that speculation is really, really healthy. And again, what I love about Avi Loeb's approach and the Galileo Project's approach is that they're willing to speculate and consider some pretty out there ideas because I think you have to uh, in this particular topic. So as I say, you really should go and check out the article in general because it's fascinating and it's on The Hill and the, it's thehill.com and the article is called Can We Find UFOs From Above? And that literally came out over the last uh, few days. Uh, it was actually January the 24th, so it came out yesterday. Um, so worth a, a read. And Avi Loeb, he just pops up with articles everywhere. So um, I was lucky to have actually found that one. Um, I don't know how that guy manages to do all the things that he does he must be a real workaholic because he's always got articles popping up but i am not complaining so moving on from that then so we've also got a little bit more about the havana syndrome uh in the news once again and this is something i've seen quite a few people sharing on twitter uh, i know um uh, frank milburn who i've been talking to recently I had him on the podcast um uh, myself and frank have actually been discussing this offline and um we're hopefully going to try and put together a show uh, for my podcast at some point soon um regarding havana syndrome and going to going into it in a little bit more detail but it's a tricky picture that's emerging because what has been mentioned in the news uh, this week was that actually the CIA investigation is not complete, but it does seem to suggest in the, these articles that are, that are coming out that so far the findings point towards the fact that um, a ad adversarial nation is not um, responsible for the effects of Havana syndrome. And that article, uh, well, there's been numerous articles, actually. Washington Post was one that I read this morning, and I also saw it on BBC News yesterday. Now, I'm not entirely convinced by that explanation, if I'm honest. And um, again, well, this will be something I'll come back to in much more detail when we do the, the dedicated show on Havana Syndrome. But let's just say the people who I'm speaking to behind the scenes, um, you know, um, and, and similar situation from, from what I've heard from the people that Frank Milburn is, is speaking to behind the scenes. Everything that I'm hearing suggests that it's nothing to do with UAP and it is to do with a state actor or some kind of adversarial nation. 
Um, even the the recent article by Gary Nolan in in uh, or the recent article on Gary Nolan's work in Vice, um, Gary Nolan very strongly suggests in the article that uh, you know he he thinks that as a state actor, um, and and not not related to UAP, especially the case that the the specific case that he's mentioning is the one on Skinwalker Ranch, and that that is. Um, suspected to be a state actor and not related to UAP exposure. So it seems very strange that you're hearing from, um, you know, uh, Gary Nowen in that particular case. I'm also hearing from other sources behind the scenes that there's a state actor involved here. And and Frank Milburn has talked on a couple of podcasts recently about the fact that um, some of these adversarial nations may have a way of hacking phone, um, mobile phones and, and routers and electronic equipment around the home or the office and using that to actually... Um, basically adapt the frequency that's been emitted by that electronic device um, to a frequency that is extremely harmful and can cause damage to uh, vital organs or your brain. Now, it's very odd that that would be the case, but then in the news we're hearing that it's not an adversary. So my speculation, just to, to drop a little bit of my thoughts in for now, and as I say, I'll come back to this in much more detail with a dedicated episode at some point soon. I would suggest that that's possibly some kind of a, trying to reduce panic and, and trying to put out a sense of calm. Perhaps um, if there is some kind of behind-the-scenes effort to look into Havana Syndrome, they've decided on the public face of it to say oh don't worry it's nothing adversarial it, we don't know what it is it's just some weird thing that's happening because actually perhaps what they're actually finding is that it is something to do with russia or china or an adversarial nation and they don't want to um you know give away that that's the the conclusions that they're reaching it seems to me to be some kind of a cover-up and it also seems a bit unusual the fact that they have announced this despite actually not having finished the investigation that raises a question mark for me why would you say we've not finished our investigation yet but what we found so far is this generally that's not how these things work i mean you know it's like uh, boris johnson's current thing with the you know the investigation into whether or not they held parties in the uk um government buildings during the lockdown it's, there's no speculation there of oh you know this, the investigation is not finished but I don't think there's anything to worry about they would never say that generally the line from any organization is we'll wait till the organization's complete before we make any judgment so it's quite irregular that they've they've actually I would imagine what's happened is they've put out a press release to all the various news outlets and media organizations to say that it is nothing adversarial despite that not seeming to be the case so there's something going on there but as i say we'll come back to that uh, later down the line i'm still trying to figure out what the links are to uap now i suppose even the fact that somebody on the ranch skinwalker ranch was targeted with havana syndrome and caused a pretty significant injury that is a link in itself to uap but lou elizondo has mentioned that we'd be hearing more about havana syndrome in the coming years and seem to sort of be suggesting a link with UAP. So Havana Syndrome is an area to keep looking into, um, but we're going to leave it there for now on that one. 
So finally, just to finish off, because this is something I've ummed and ahed about whether to even talk about on the podcast, but I'm just going to go into it. Um, you know, I can give my opinion. You may think about this completely differently, which is completely fine. You know, I think in the UFO topic, in any topic really in life, you have to be quite comfortable disagreeing sometimes, you know, and, and I think that's healthy and absolutely fine. A lot of the people I listen to, I'm, like I said a lot, I am an actual podcast addict. I listen to tons of podcasts, you know, even though I have my own podcast, I'm always listening to UFO podcasts and um, I've talked on the, in the past about which ones I listen to and things like that. There's a lot out there, so I don't listen to every podcast, but, um, you know, I really enjoy listening to a wide range of podcasts and a lot of these podcasts, I don't necessarily agree with everything that everyone says and that's fine. You know, sometimes I end up revisiting my opinion and thinking, actually, yeah, that person probably is right and I was wrong. And other times I think that they're probably wrong and I'm probably right. But that that's all part of piecing together this mystery and this puzzle. So yeah, if, if you don't agree with some of what I'm saying about this particular point, that's perfectly fine. And uh, everyone's entitled to their own opinion. And the point is, uh, the recent interview with John Ramirez on the on Unidentified Celebrity Review and the also followed up a few days later by this um, Linda Moulton Howe interview on the Theories of Everything podcast. So basically, they, they were both a kind of a bit of a, you know, both sides of the same coin in a way, these particular two interviews. If you're not familiar with what happened, basically John Ramirez, um, uh, you know, a long distinguished career within the CIA, um, had uh, quite a lot of expertise in certain areas to do with sensor systems and satellites um, and signals intelligence. And um, he was on um, UCR uh, just recently and did quite a long uh, interview there. And uh, Rather Be Squidding, uh, one of the hosts, pretty pretty intensively kind of grilled him about a few areas. Now, my personal opinion is that the questioning was not the tone that, that I thought was necessary for the situation. The questions themselves, I, I don't have a problem with. I think we should be asking tough questions. And I think that if you ask a tough question, it then gives the person that you're interviewing the opportunity to set the record straight if they don't think it was, you know, that the, the area is worthy of criticism then they get their opportunity to put their idea forward and at the end of the day it should always be that the strongest idea the, the strongest um you know line of thinking on a certain area is the one that prevails and if somebody suggests something a certain way you then have the opportunity to provide a rebuttal but the i think the issue was just there was a lot of rather talking over john which i thought was a bit unfortunate and it was clearly, you know, kind of irritating John, which I don't think is a particularly, you know, um, I, I don't think that's a, a, a good angle to go for with dealing with a guest. I don't think you should, you know, be actively trying to uh, irritate your guest and put them on the back foot. I don't think that was necessarily Rather's intention, but it certainly was the outcome. And... I felt like the tone of the questioning, the way that the questions were being asked was mostly the problem. And 
I felt a bit bad for John uh, because I felt like he was trying to answer the questions as best he could, but rather just pursued the points more and more, like he was really trying to um, expose, you know, some falsehoods in what John was saying. And I, d I don't think that that the tone was right. I'll just put it that way. Now, a lot of people have stepped out in support of Rather's questioning. A lot of people have stepped out in, in support of John Ramirez and and, uh, and slated Rather's questioning. Um, I just think it's something to learn from. And my personal opinion is that it, the, the questioning was a little bit too much. The tone of the questioning, the way that it was done, not necessarily the questions themselves. Because I, like I said, if you read the, the question on paper, I don't think there's much of an issue with it. But it's the way that something is said it makes a big difference and you can ask tough questions without being interrogative if that's actually even a word um and i really don't like gotcha type of things you know where you kind of lure somebody in with with leading questions to kind of trap them and, and make them appear to be um you know stupid or something it's something that i would never do in an interview and i feel like there was even if it wasn't intended to come across that way, that's kind of how it felt to me listening to it. But, like I said, I know a lot of people won't agree with that. A lot of people, um, I've saw, I saw people on Twitter kind of saying things along the lines of, you know, I saw somebody in particular, I can't remember who it was now, uh, I apologise, um, but somebody said, when people say it's not the question, it's the way the question was asked, it's most often the question that was the problem. And I just don't agree because I think you can ask a question in lots of different ways. And if the tone of your voice and the way you put a question across and you don't let your guest finish and you, you're butting in all the time and talking over them, it just gets somebody's back up and there's a better way of doing it than that. Um, so that that's my uh, viewpoint on that. Nothing against, rather. I, I know other people are not a big fan of the guy. Some people love him. I actually don't mind, rather. Um, in terms of his actual videos that he does on his own channel, I, can't, I actually find them uh, find them quite interesting. Uh, he's got some some uh, ideas that I don't agree with, and some that I do, and it's always an interesting viewpoint um, with with some of his analysis. But in this case, I think it was um, a little bit beyond the line. Now, um, the other one was Linda Moulton Howe on theories of everything, and uh, I thought this was pretty much the opposite situation. I thought that. Um, that Kurt actually asked some some tough questions, but those are the questions that people wanted to hear answered, and he asked them in a way that I, I thought personally was, was very polite and, and was the correct way to ask those questions. But Linda Morton Howe became very defensive on, on hearing certain questions being asked, and I think, unfortunately, she didn't misunderstand quite a few of the questions as well, and Kurt had to kind of go back and, and clarify what he actually meant. Um, but, you know, that that's kind of by the by. Obviously, Linda Morton Howe is, is, is an 80-year-old lady at the end of the day, so there, there may be some things that get lost in, in, in translation a little bit. Um, and, you know, perhaps we do have to cut a little bit of slack just from that point of view, not to patronise, because obviously... Linda Moulton Howe is a very capable person and somebody who's been involved in this topic for decades and decades longer than I have. So, um, you know, nothing but respect for, for you know, for persistence on that, uh, on, the, on the topic, you know. But at the same time, if you've been involved in the topic for decades, you should have some pretty rounded arguments to back up your viewpoints. And she didn't provide them, unfortunately. And it was a case of basically something that I think perhaps 
the old guard in ufology in in the study of the phenomenon or the phenomena you know i think back in the olden days before the information sharing on the internet people had to really cling to cases with pretty dubious provenance if we put it that way and i think perhaps some people who used to be involved in the older areas of the study of of the phenomena became accustomed to you know um accepting cases with dubious provenance and it became more about almost a cult of personality you know you you kind of trust that Stephen Greer's case that he's put forward is legit because it's Stephen Greer that we're talking about you know my argument is that forget who's brought it forward what are the actual facts and figures and you know evidence on the table and i think that is a distinct difference that these two interviews really made me think about we're in an era now post ttsa post Luis zondo chris mellon coming out post the navy videos it's a different climate and the days of you know i've been looking into this topic for 20 years the days of I've put hours and hours of boots in the ground research into this particular case. So you have to believe me, those days are over and it's a different situation now. Now, don't get me wrong, as somebody who talks about this topic, you build up credibility and people you know, take you seriously or less seriously depending on the credibility that you've built up. That is still the case. But additionally now, cases have to have real evidence and data to back them up otherwise we you know you can't really take it seriously considering that there are other cases out there that do have that dubious provenance you know backed up by somebody who appears to be legit is no longer acceptable in terms of having conversations about new cases and i i think that's a good thing and what what perhaps these couple of interviews have um have um made me think about is the the kind of crossover and bleed through of people using that old approach compared to people using the newer approach you know i think um even if you have that new approach of being a bit more demanding in terms of what you require from a certain case or a certain conversation there's a way to go about it yes demand more information demand more high quality source information and and evidence and data to back things up but on the other hand we have to be able to do that in a way that is respectful and that you know doesn't upset people and can remain civil and as you all probably know if you listen to this show that's what i try and do all the time i have no problem disagreeing with somebody but i also at the same time I've made a pledge, a solemn pledge to never insult people, you know, attack the argument, not the person. And the problem is when you have somebody like Linda Morton Howe saying, um, so, you know, I think the question, funnily enough, actually, the question came from Lewis uh, from UCR, which is a, a strange link how it all comes full circle there. But um, Lewis's question to Linda Morton Howe right at the end of the Kurt uh, Jaimungle interview on Theories of Everything was, um, has there ever been a case that you've had to redact because of, um, 
you know, the information turned out to not be as good as you thought it was. A legit question. And I think he actually says, big Linda fan, a thanks or something at the end. So, you know, he has asked a question there, which I think is a legitimate question, asked in, in a way that I find to be reasonable. And, and Linda basically responded to that by going on a rant about how she was a respectable journalist, how she's looked into this subject for decades and like almost seeming to suggest how dare you question whether or not any of my cases have been, have, have not, have not been, you know, not stacked up in, in the long run. And the, the concept of how dare you question my credibility misses the point because what we're talking about here is specific cases and that, that, doesn't necessarily have anything to do with your individual credibility as a person we're talking about like i said earlier you should attack the idea not the person you know and if that is the case the the person as as uh, you know there is a, an importance there because the person bringing a certain case forward is worthy of consideration when you're actually considering the case but i think more importantly especially in the the current climate of of this topic more importantly is the actual case itself you know it's like the jeremy corbell and george knapp footage that's come out you know yes you you kind of probably slightly more willing to take it on board in the first place because it's george knapp and you know and it's Jeremy Corbell, you know, who, who, again, some people question certain things about either of those two gentlemen. But the fact is, they bring it forward. But then once they've brought it forward and got it to your attention, you should be focusing on the case itself. And the person at that point is almost irrelevant. And uh, yeah, as I say, just it's a few a few things that it made me think about to do with the, the older generation of, of UFOs and the newer generation. And, and how can we... How can we improve things going forward? Because what we have to remember is we are all on the same team at the end of the day. We all want more information about this topic. We, we all want more transparency and we have to work together. It can't be, you know, screw the old generation. They think about it in an old fashioned way. These people have got real information. And I, I even think that about Stephen Greer. A lot of what Stephen Greer said is probably legit. You know, and there's a lot of people who who put a lot of faith into what Stephen Greer has said. Now he's unfortunately soured the, the the pot a little bit by you know certain other things that have come out over the years, like the you know the flares and so on, which you know are very questionable. But it's not to say that because of some questionable things that have happened that we have to discount everything that he said in his career, because there's definitely certain things you can learn from people who've been involved in this topic for many many years, and. There are also things you can learn from people who've just got involved as part of the new wave uh, of people involved in this topic who have got a bit of a different approach based on the fact that it's a it's a new day, you know. So it has made me think a bit about how we can work together more because that's what we have to do. You know, we can't have divisions. If we really want to make progress on this topic, we're all part of the same movement. We have differences, but we have to just figure out a way to work around that. I don't have the answers there, but if, if you guys have got any thoughts, any listeners want to get in touch, as always, you can give me a shout on Twitter at UFOThinker and uh, UFOThinker at Hotmail.com or UFOThinker at ProtonMail.com. Uh, do give me a shout. If you're still listening to this point in the podcast, you are definitely a hard, 
hardcore listener because it's an hour and six minutes in by this point so congratulations on sticking with it without falling asleep <laughs> so, um anyway i'm gonna have to go because uh, i'm probably gonna lose my voice if i carry on for much longer but thank you for listening i do hope you've got something out of it and don't forget if you do listen to the podcast a lot and you feel like you get a lot out of it do feel free to go and support on patreon.com forward slash UFO thinker. It really helps to just keep all the, the costs in order in terms of managing the podcast and allows me to dedicate more time to, to putting into uh, doing this work, which I would love to spend longer and longer on it. But unfortunately, I have bills to pay and so on. So thanks for everybody who does support on Patreon already. And uh, anybody that's not already, not already on there, feel free to join the club. And... Um, that's about all we've got time for today so thanks again for listening and until next time take it easy stay curious and i'll catch you in the next episode UFO Podcast.